Now, NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. Welcome to NDE Radio with Lee Whitting, whether you're listening on TalkZone, by podcast, through the archives of our ad-free shows on our YouTube channel, or connected through the incredible content of our Facebook page. Our guest today, Jason Denon, was born and raised in New Jersey, but he moved to Colorado, he says, to explore and test his limits. In the process, Jason became a skydiver, mountain climber, and triathlete. And when a skydiving accident nearly killed him, he became an author, inspirational speaker, and grateful Christian as well. The doctor who performed emergency life-saving surgery on him said that no one survives what Jason had survived. No one. Jason woke from a coma that lasted eight days. He required multiple surgeries to repair four organs and 20 broken bones. His badly broken body required him to stay in the hospital for three and a half months, undergo 11 months of rehab and and relearning how to walk. And after being told by his doctor he might never be able to run again, Jason decided to sign up for a triathlon, (laughs) which amazed me to test the doctor's prognosis. And less than one year after the accident, he completed a triathlon and proved the doctor very wrong. The long journey to recovery from the accident allowed him time to reassess the direction of his life and answer why his life was spared. This second chance at life revealed to him a new purpose. He promised himself that he would share his story and what he learned to help others that are going through difficult hardships in their own lives. Today, Jason is on a mission to inspire people with his story of survival and to empower them to get through life's most difficult hardships by utilizing the lessons they have already learned and utilizing the strength they already possess. His true life encounter made Jason realize that God had a plan for him and that his accident was a blessing to transform his life. Jason Denning's book is titled Eight Days Till Sunrise, A True Story of Survival, rebirth, and discovering my purpose in life. Jason, welcome to NDE Radio. Hey, thanks so much for having me on, Lee. Appreciate it. Wonderful. And it's an amazing story that you've got. Jason, let's start with the story of your incredible accident. Sure. I was a skydiver. I'd been doing it for a couple of years and had a couple hundred jumps. And on the third jump of that particular Saturday, I was coming in for a landing. I was about 150 feet off the ground And all of a sudden I was hit by a big wind from behind, like a surge. And I went from going to be landing on the grass to, I'm not sure I'm going to land before this grass or this building and and fence that was quickly coming upon me. So I was about from 150 feet, you're about five seconds away from landing or touching down on the ground. You can't turn at that point because turning with a parachute means you pull down a handle it creates your parachute diving towards the ground, and that creates the turn. Now, if you're 2,000 feet off the ground, that's no big deal. If you're 150 feet off the ground and you try to turn, you'll go directly into the ground at highway speeds, and you're not going to survive. So I had to just take a deep breath and just relax. And as I'm coming down, you don't come straight down. You come in a, in a forward action, so you're going 25 miles an hour or so, and the, the wind sped me up. And as I'm counting down those five seconds, I go, I'm not really sure if I'm going to touch down on the grass or hit something. And with about a second to go, I was like, nope, um, I'm hitting this fence. The fence hit goes across my chest and abdomen. And it was a wire fence, like a cattle fence. And that quickly just, I ripped through it and I feel it break. And then the airplane hanger was 
10 feet behind it and I hit it head on and blacked out. So I hit so hard on the left side of my body that I hit, broke 10 of my 12 ribs that impacted my heart. Now your heart normally sits in something called a pericardial sac. It explodes out of the sac and ends up on the right side of my chest. So I'm laying on the ground. And it's one of the things that happened when I'm laying on the ground. Now I'm blacked out. I have, re- I have no idea that any of this happened until months later when somebody told me. But the first people on the scene start talking to me to see how I am. And the first thing I say to them, don't call anyone. I'll be okay. Just give me a second. <laughs> uh, and obviously, they saw the destruction of what I looked like and, and, and luckily called 911. But I was defaulted to fight because I've always done that before. So my body automatically kicked into fight mode to save my life. So they flight for life me down to uh, the nearest level one trauma center, which was 50 miles away for immediate life-saving surgery to put my heart back. So essentially the doctors explained to my family that they had never done the surgery, even at this hospital, it deals with the worst of the worst types of accidents because that's where they send them because no one ever makes it alive. It's a blunt force trauma and, and most people, their heart just disconnects if it moves that far on, on the other side of their body and they die immediately before they get to even come to the hospital. So they were not even sure it worked that that heart surgery because it took them three days before they closed my chest back up. So they kept on testing and testing. And I was in a coma for eight days, so I didn't know any of this was going on. And uh, besides the the heart moving, the rest of my body was like 20 broken bones, four total organs they had to fix over that eight-day period. And they intubated me into that coma so I wouldn't move around. And they were scared that you know something would hurt me if I if I moved at all. And during that period of, of the coma, I guess one of the interesting th- things that happened was my family is from the East Coast. I'm originally from the East Coast, and they flew out immediately when they got the call from the hospital that I might not live. So my parents enter the ICU, and uh, first my mom takes a picture of me because she said months later that she took a picture just in case I didn't survive, that she would have one last picture of me. And then she approached the bed and picked up my hand, and she said, Jace, it's mom, I'm here. And I squeezed her hand. I had no idea that ever that happened. She had to tell me months later, but it was kind of the sign that went out, like as bad as this looks and as badly broken as I was and the breathing tube out in my throat and not being able to move, that I was still somewhere underneath all that mess and I was fighting for my life. And that was kind of the sign of hope that went out to my parents unknowingly that I, that did I know that I actually did that. But yeah, that was kind of the start of, I guess, the comeback back to life. That's always so re-encouraging to a visitor. When I was chaplain at a hospital, I'd suggest that people take the patient's hand and squeeze it themselves. I wouldn't promise them anything, but sometimes they'd get a squeeze back and they were always happy about that. Yeah. I always encourage people that, you know, because it's a scary place when you're a visitor to a hospital, when someone's in terrible shape. Mm. And, And from my experience, I always tell people, I was like, I know it's uncomfortable. Imagine what it feels like for the patient. But the important thing is you don't think they hear you. They don't think they know you're there. But because of that experience that I had, like, obviously I knew something must have been going on the outside in some way and mm-hmm. that you have an incredible um, ability to help someone. In a, you don't realize you're helping them, but you are. So I was encouraged people, no matter how bad it looks, still talk to the person. Treat them like that you normally treat them in a conversation, even though they're, they may not be conscious or seem to be conscious. Right. And if they are conscious, they're going to hear everything you say. So be careful what you do say. That was always a warning I gave people too, because they might, you know, they might start talking about something really unpleasant and the patient could often hear every word. 
Jason, you you write in your book you experienced hundreds of nightmares during your eight day long coma, and the description in your book makes it sound like uh, nothing less than a trip through what the Buddhists call the bardo, uh, a forty nine day long journey of the soul to its next reincarnation which they claim is all generated from the dying person's own memories and brain, that it's not imposed, even though they may see monsters or feel temptations or the like. Now, near-death experiencers would call it a distressing NDE, possibly including a life review. And as a Christian, you describe it in chapter three of your book as the first temptations. And you quote 1 Corinthians that says, God is faithful he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. You said you have vivid memories of these hundreds of nightmares. So tell us the details of some of these nightmares you experienced. Yeah. Well, and I first kind of, before I get into the particular nightmares, I would say they always kind of have a, all of them had a similar theme in that I was in bad shape. I needed help and people were unwilling to help me. So one of the first dreams that I remember is I'm wrapped up in like a sheet and I'm in my hospital gown and two people are carrying me, uh, hospital staff, and they're bringing me out. I'm in the desert and I love the desert. One of the places I enjoy the most as far as camping and hiking and renewal. And so they're, they're carrying me out there and then they place me on the ground in the middle of this desert in the middle of nowhere. And they just say, sorry, we can't help you. And they just walk away. And one of the things I, I would say is like, it was in, I was indirectly being asked if I really wanted to live and I was going to have to make that decision without knowing the consequence of the accident. Cause even in that coma, I had a sense that I was, I didn't know what my injuries were because I blacked out when I hit that building. I knew I was in terrible shape and I was, I was, I was fighting and life up to that point, I was in a really tough part in life before that accident. And it was like, do you really want to live knowing you're going back to that? not being happy. And it, it, I felt like it was a, you know, a test to say, you know, you could just give up. No one's going to know except yourself. If you give up and let yourself die, it was like an easy way of just giving in to, to it. And you kept on getting this bad news from these nightmares saying, yeah, it's, it's, no one cares about you. No one helps. And, and at some point you start saying, well, I, I, I don't believe that's true. But when you're living in these nightmares, uh, like say when you're in the coma and you and you can't wake up and you're bombarded by all these nightmares, it's easy to start believing that these things that you see in these nightmares are real and true. Because if you're in the outside world, you just wake up from it and you could shake it off and say, well, that was just a nightmare. But when you can't wake up, it becomes almost like your reality. So that was one of the first ones. You know, another one I was I was in a hospital in a um a doctor's office. And I'm waiting my, my turn to be, the, be called by the staff to go back to the doctor. I'm waiting and waiting. And then finally, I, I think I'm next. And all of a sudden they say, sorry, we're not, we can't help you. We're calling the police. We're not bringing you in there. So you kept on kind of getting this disappointing feeling, even in the times when you think someone's going to help you, they decide that, you know, they're, they're not for whatever reason. Uh, and it was hard to, you, I felt like a lot of these dreams started after something bad happened and I was, and I was getting blamed for, for whatever it was that, that was bad. And I, I never understood what I had done. Uh, but people were generally in most of these dreams, angry at me and then unwilling to help me. I mean, there was other dreams where I was, there was a turned over bus, like a bus was in a car in an accident. 
and we're upside down and we're all kind of hanging by our seatbelts and people are staring at me like I was the one who who caused this accident. So, you know, it was constantly being re-asked, do I want to be here? Are you with all this bad news? Are you, do you still want to live through this or just it's easy to give up? And in a way, too, it's I mean, if you take the medical terminology and your and your physical body out of it, it's also like, to put it simply, does God and the angels still hold out forgiveness and love for me? Or am I abandoned on that account? That am I stuck here without any assistance, which, you know, ultimately comes down, at least in spiritual terms, to love. Had you looked at it that way at all? I looked at it as more that temptation piece that I was just tempted to give up. And was it worth coming back? Was it worth rebuilding yourself? But not knowing what the results were from this accident. Was I going to be paralyzed? Would I have, you know, brain damage? Who knew what 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 the end result was? to build myself back up. So I'm not sure um, I, I, I've thought about it in terms of um, in terms of, of love, but I think you're tempted when you're at your weakest. And I was truly at my weakest in a physical state. So when you're visited by this temptation in, in your weakest state, you certainly could give up or you're more likely to give up when you're at your weakest state. You're not tempted when you're at your strongest. Mm-hmm. So it's the ultimate test of, you know, whether you want want to keep going or not and no one's going to no one's going to be bother if 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 you decide to give up cuz no one's going to know and it, and it's kind of an easy way out to uh allow yourself to give up because you are the only one that you're not disappointing anyone uh, you're except yourself I should have asked you from the beginning whether you were raised in a religious tradition at all whether you were a catholic protestant jewish or whatever and what you thought being raised it meant to die in other words giving up sort of suggests that there's nothing beyond our physical lives here. But you're now a self-described Christian. Looking back on your upbringing, what did that have in your feeling during this coma? Yeah. I was raised in the Methodist church. I knew all the lessons. And when we talked about temptation and things like that during the coma, it was like I learned all the lessons I needed to know to survive before I ever needed to survive from, Mm -hmm. from the church and all those lessons. And those came to me when I was in a lot of times didn't wasn't sure what I was supposed to be doing. Cause I think one of the things was when you're in that, you know, terrible shape or you call it trials or difficult times you go through, it's there to test your faith and and develop your perseverance. So lots of scripture came to my mind in a in a really confusing time because you're certainly not thinking straight when you're in that coma and medication and all those other things. And, and, and trying to figure it out at the beginning when you're like, what, what are all these bad things happening? And then it's so confusing. And then you have kind of a moment of calm where you're just like, oh, this is, this is temptation and this is how we get through it. But to go back to, yes, I believed in heaven. I accepted Jesus as my savior many years before that. So I suppose, you know, there's that feeling of, yeah, if I died, heaven was the place that I was in the direction where I was going. But I kind of felt like God having this plan for me, it's like, there's no, there's more for you to do here because you're not doing exactly what you, you're capable of doing on earth before it's your time to die and, and you know go to heaven. So I think there's the belief that there was more for me down here and I wasn't ready for that yet, or God wasn't ready for me to do that yet. He had more for me to do. And going through this is how 
God was going to work through me to have a new purpose in life and, 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 you know, spread his word and help other people, which ultimately became the purpose and mission of, you know, going through this and, and living on the other side. And then kind of, what do you do with this experience after you live through this, you know, situation where people said you shouldn't be alive. Right. During the coma, did you ever have any sense that you were getting some input to tell you that? Or was this something that you thought about afterwards and reflecting on what you'd been through? Were there any messages from the other side saying, you know, you won't die, you shouldn't die, you should struggle to stick around because God's got some work for you to do? Right. Well, I, I, there was there weren't voices or, or messages in that way. Like I said, I, I think the Bible verses and scriptures that I was thinking of in those that confusing time got me through. I don't think there was like, we, we have more of you. I think yet we have, ultimately we have free will. And the free will was that choice of, are you going to let yourself go and and let your, allow yourself to die? Or do you think there is more for you and you need to fight to go on? So I think that was left to me to say, all right. And then w- once, once you get through that, then it starts being to reveal to you, oh, you decided your free will said you still want to live. And this is what comes with that free will and your choice to move forward and, and live through this. Mm. So I think the comas were, it was always a really dark place. There was no light during those eight days, but I knew there was light beyond this darkness or this storm that I was living through. And the fight through that temptation would eventually lead me to that light and the knowledge that there was light and in my heart, I knew there was light beyond where I was, and I was just going through that difficult situation. So you could draw some spiritual strength from that knowledge. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I'd say it's like when you don't know what to do and all of the things, sometimes you think you, you, you learn something in life and you maybe thought you forgot it, but you never really forgot it. It just became a part of you and you didn't realize it became a part of you. Then when you're going through your toughest time in your life, then all those lessons come to you exactly when you need it, when you don't know what direction to turn in, how to how to fight through what you're going through. It's like it gives you a calming effect and a direction of like, yeah, this is what this is. This is temptation and you need to fight through it. And you've been told your entire life you're not going to, you know, it's not going to overtake you. But you know, this is like seeing is believing, right? Because it's like you you can you could say you believe in something, but then when you're fully put to the test, I feel like I was fully being put to the test. Like, well, do you really believe these things? Are these really in your heart? And those are the things you're fighting through to see if because I believe in those things, I was able to get out the other side. If I wasn't, then maybe I would have, you know, chose not to go on. I think it's interesting that you are so athletic, not in a competitive way necessarily, although I don't know. If you played sports or not, you probably did in school. But yeah, I did. I was competitive. <laughs> <laughs> but triathlons and skydiving, these are totally physically competitive. And of course, to do that, you also need a spiritual will and spiritual strength as well. But just in reflecting back on your life before the accident, were you using all of this physicality as to uh, offset something else? Well, I like challenge. I like unknown. And it, triathlon, I'd done you know years before with the comeback race, but uh, that started with I graduated from college. Uh, I was I certainly wasn't a swimmer, or I mean I wasn't a long distance runner or a cyclist. But uh, I, I was like, well, what am I going to do? What 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 am I going to do to challenge myself? I need something, and uh, and then I saw 
triathlon on TV six months before I graduated from college. And I was just like, it was the Ironman triathlon in Hawaii, the world championships. I was like, man, I wonder if I could do that. So it's the <laughs> doubt that you have yeah. that drives you. Cause you're like, same thing with skydiving. It, it was, it was the doubt because lots of people will tell you they can do something, but actually doing is a lot different than saying you're going to do something. So uh, when I was skydiving, it came out of the same kind of challenge that I was like, I see people jumping out of the plane. Can I do that? Can I keep calm? Can I do all the things you need to do to, to be safe, you know, landing and, and being under the parachute and all those other things. And it's terrifying, but if it wasn't terrifying, it probably wouldn't be worth the challenge. So I would say some of the things that almost killed me also saved my life. Same thing with mountain climbing. You know, there's some parallels between some of the things you go through, whether it's skydiving or, you know, climbing mountains. I would call it going into the void. There have been some times other, I mean, I certainly went into it during the coma, but in climbing mountains, there have been some times where survival certainly weren't, wasn't assured. And, you know, you're moving for 25, 30 hours without stopping in dangerous territory and, you know, one slip and you're done. And you kind of go into a mindset, a survival mindset. You're not thinking of anything other than safely getting yourself to the next step to survive. So I guess I had been in that place before the coma in various, you know, at least four or five times in, in climbing mountains, or I, I was doing an Ironman triathlon. My, my, my body was shutting down in 102 degree weather for 14 or 15 hours. And, and, and your mind goes to a certain place in order to keep going forward to, to, to get to the end or in mountain climbing terms, get the safety or, or the coma getting to that light again and getting out of that coma. So there are some interesting parallels between climbing and being in bad situations in that coma. It was like I was almost a little bit trained into how to keep pushing forward because it was defaulted into my personality and to the, the way I look at things and, and get through difficult things in life. So I think that certainly helped getting out of that coma as well. Oh. And it took how long to learn how to walk again? That you could do a triathlon within a year's time amazes me. Just give our listeners some idea of how badly damaged you were during your rehab period. Yeah. So there was about 10 weeks where I wasn't allowed to move at all, except my kind of my right hand and elbow was about all I could move. Uh, so his arms were in casts and my legs, um, I had a um, a rod in my left leg and then my pelvis was broken in the front or the back front and the back is called a ring ring fracture so basically i had to just lay in bed and i couldn't move occasionally they would pick me up with i would call like it was almost like a crane and they would move me to a wheelchair that was heavily padded so i could do something else but lay in bed but mm. otherwise i just had to lay there and say don't move that was about two and a half months of that so when i moved to the fourth hospital they finally, and that was around the 10, 11 week period. They finally put me in a wheelchair for the first time where it was, they expected me to actually move the wheelchair. So at this point, the cast finally came off my arms after about 10 weeks or so. So the first day that they try to put me into that wheelchair when I'm in the rehab facility, they say, okay, Jason, you know, sit up and we'll move you, help show you how to get into the wheelchair. And I couldn't sit up. That's how weak I was. Cause after 10 weeks of not being able to move or use any muscles and plus the trauma, yes. like yeah. your muscles completely gone. And I found that out when I saw myself in the mirror for the first time after 10 weeks. So I get to this ho the hospital, they put me in the shower. I can't even put my hands to my head to wash my own head. I'm so inflexible. <laughs> and then they put me in the wheelchair in front of the mirror. And I was like, that's the first time I saw myself in 10 weeks. So I have no shirt on. 
And I was just like, you see the huge, there's, I have a huge scar that goes from my collarbone all the way below my waist where they opened my, 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 uh, my body up to fix the heart and the diaphragm and all those other parts they had to fix. And then there was all these marks where tubes were coming out of my abdomen and my chest where they were draining blood in those early days. So the first time I see all this mess and there's like, you know, slits everywhere. And at this point, the cuts are healed. And that's why I could take it because I couldn't take a shower for like nine weeks or get wet. And it's just skin hanging off bone. And I look at myself and I'm just like, whoa, I was just like, it was, you know, disturbing to look at. And you're just like, man, I'm really starting from zero. But I was like, that's okay. Because I knew muscle comes back faster the second time once you develop it much faster. So I was like, as soon as I start moving my body around, this, this is going to come back. But then I looked myself in the eyes and I, and I, and I just asked myself a question. I was like, like, are you who you proclaim to be? Right. It's like, we can make up all these narratives in our head of who we are, but the reality is we're, we're who we are when we're at our lowest. And I was just like, I have faith. I believe God has a plan for me. I've been through some crazy stuff in the mountains trips where I might not have survived. I was like, I always said I'm my best when things are at their worst. That's what the way I thought about it when we're in these horrible situations in the mountains where, you know, avalanches coming down or danger, rock fall, all kinds of things. But I was like, am I really that guy? I was like, if I'm really that guy, then I'm going to make it back. If I'm not, then I may be in some trouble. So every day I used to look at myself in the mirror and ask myself that same question. Are you living up to who you say you are? So go back to the, what I'm getting out of the bed the first time. So they say, sit up. I said, I, I, I can't sit up. I was so weak. So they said, okay, can you, can you roll on your side? I tried to roll on my side. I couldn't roll on my side. That's how weak I was. So basically they, they grabbed me and they start kind of edging me to the, to the edge of the bed. They helped me into the wheelchair. There's like a, something called a slide board where you kind of put your butt on it and you, you slide into the wheelchair. So they make it a downhill slide essentially. Then they'd say to me, okay, push the wheelchair. We, we, it's breakfast time. We want you to push yourself to breakfast. And I made it, I didn't make it out of the room. And we're talking about the rooms, maybe 15 feet wide. I'm pushing one arm was so weak. It, it was always like pulling the wheelchair to the one side and I'm going like so slow at, at, at some point they, they kind of, they said, we'll push you the rest away. But what they're really saying was breakfast is only last an hour. And if we kept on letting you push it, there's no way breakfast is going to be over. <laughs> um, so we're starting at like super low. So at that point I get, I just think, Okay this is just day one, you know, I'm day two. I'm going to push that wheelchair 15 feet. The next day I'm going to push it a little bit further. So on that first day I go, I need to, I need a win today. I need to find a way to prove to myself. I'm going to get a little bit better. So up until that point. So this is the first day I'm, I'm essentially sitting up for more than like two hours. And I was in, in that other hospital, I was basically propped up. I wouldn't, I wasn't using my muscles to sit up. I was just like against the back. So that first day I go, okay, I'm in this wheelchair. I can't even get back into the bed myself unless someone helps me. But I was just like, this is what I'm going to do today. I'm just going to sit in this wheelchair as long as I possibly can, because that'll prove to me that I'm, I'm finding some way to get better today. So because I was sitting in this new kind of wheelchair, you had to actually activate your core muscles, your abdomen and your back and things like that. So I'm sitting there for hours and hours and I'm like, this is so uncomfortable. This doesn't feel good. But I was just like, I don't really care. Just keep sitting here as long as you can. So I went up sitting in that chair for, I don't know, probably 10 hours that day. And they kept on coming me in and, and almost tempting me to go, we'll put you back in your bed if you want. Nope, not going back to bed. Come back an hour later. Are you sure you want to, don't go to, want to go to bed and take a nap? 
don't. I've taken enough naps. I'm sitting here. They keep on coming throughout the day. I was like, no, I, I'm sitting here. They had no idea what I was doing. I was the only one person. It was my own rehab, my mental rehab. And then finally, you know, that gets dark and it's time for Ben. They move me back. So every day I would just kind of like push a little bit further and that's going to lead me somewhere. I couldn't guarantee that it was going to lead me exactly one place, but, or to where I wanted to go. But I knew the only way to do is find little wins every day to get better. And one of the things they, they told me, it was about day three of the hospital. I realized I'm like, man, they didn't ask me what my goal was. And I was just like, that seems strange. Maybe they did an assessment or they're figuring out their own you know, goal for me. So I was like, well, I'm going to tell them what it is. So the following day, the therapist come in and I said, you know, you haven't asked me my goal. I'm just letting you know I'm walking out of this hospital on the last day. All right. Are you with that goal? And they look at me with this crazy look like they're like, that's not that's not an option here. You're, you're going to go home in a wheelchair. And I said, um, OK, so I just quiet, never mentioned it again. So weeks, weeks and weeks and weeks go on. And I'm just like, I'll do whatever they tell me to do. That's all I always said. I was like, I don't care what they ask me. I'll do whatever. Cause I assume they're, they have my best interest in our, at heart. They're not going to injure me. So just keep on going. And, and what they noticed was every day they'd come into my room and I would be doing all these exercises on my own without anyone asking me. So, uh, finally I get more x-rays cause you only get x-rays every you know, four weeks. So the doctor's like, and, and this was pivotal day because if I didn't get cleared, I definitely was going at home in a wheelchair because I couldn't put any weight on my legs. Or if he possibly said, we're going to let you put weight on your legs, there was a potential of getting out of the hospital. So go there, get the x-rays. And the doctor's like, eh, you're not fully healed. And I was like, oh, that means wheelchair. Then he goes, but, uh, but we'll let you put some weight on your legs because it'll help you heal faster. And uh, so we go back to the hospital. Therapist comes in and she's like, do you want to try and walk today? And I was like, yeah, I want to try and walk right now. I've been thinking about this for like the last, you know, whatever it was, six or eight weeks. So she brings me in a room. I'm there by myself in the therapy room. And she's like, okay, it's time to stand up. And I, you know, kind of edged to the ed edge of the wheelchair. And I mean, I hadn't put any weight on my legs in three, three months. So, I mean, they were atrophied, they were small. And, and I, it was it, just to stand up. It was like a, the huge effort. My legs were shaking. And then I take a couple of steps and I do it again. So the therapist is wheeling me back to my room. And it's the therapist that gave me the crazy look when I, when I told her I was walking out of the hospital on the last day. And, she, and she's like, you know, I thought you were going to be celebrating, like walking for this first time, Jason. And I said, uh, she's like, I've been doing this for 15 years. I've never seen anybody was bedridden as long as you have with as many injuries as you had, you know, just get up and walk like you did. I wasn't impressed with myself because I thought, I thought I wasn't walking very well at all. I was like, yeah, <laughs> I mean, this is just day one. And I turned to her, I said, you know, I'm not celebrating because my goal wasn't to take a couple steps. My, my goal is to walk out of this hospital on the last day. And she just kind of got quiet and she willed me the rest of the way to the room. And then a week later I walked out of the hospital, but the running start just as kind of small as pushing that wheelchair. My walking took a long time to get I, every day. I would just walk and walk. Cause I love to walk. So I was like, I hadn't walked in three months that I was just like addicted to walking. So I'm just like, I'm going to make myself better every day. And every day I just go a little bit further. And then uh, finally, I go back to the doctor six months later because uh, I was in the hospital for three and a half months. So I was at home at this point doing rehab, you know, eight hours a day on my own with, with some outpatient rehab. So I kind of, I'm kind of limping and walking slowly. I get to the doctor's office and he sees me walking in and does more x-rays. And he said, 
the bones are finally healed in your legs. And I said, okay. I said, well, do I get to run again? I was like, like, is that okay? And he looked at me like, cause obviously he just saw me like limping into the room. Like I, I was off balance, not looking good. And he's just like, uh, he was like, well, you're not going to break yourself if you do it. I was like, so, so the answer is yes. Right. I can run. And he's like, if you want to, it's not going to feel like your leg. Uh, I said, okay. So I drive home that day and I, you know, I put, put my running shoes on and I go, well, let's see, let's see. And yeah, my walking wasn't awe inspiring. They go, this guy's ready for running, but I was like, ah, I'm going to do it. So I do it, go 50, 50 feet on the first day. And it certainly wasn't a run, but it was more than a walk. It was more like a waddle because my, my, my body was just so tight and, you know, screwed up still. Then I got the 50 feet and I go, okay, tomorrow's a hundred. The next day is 150. And it was like that same kind of attitude is just find every day to get a little further is what eventually led me back to racing again. Wow. Have you ever thought of a career in physical therapy? <laughs> because you would be such a great coach for so many people who uh, don't have your attitude, but they could have your attitude if you coached them in it. Well, I, I mean, I, I certainly try to help anyone that, that, you know, comes to me or knows me, or sometimes I inject and they don't ask me and I, I tell them what they need to do for rehab when they're going through. I mean, my dad just had knee replacement um, about three months ago. So yeah, not, not officially as a, as a therapist, but I, I think people look at you a little bit differently when they know, especially know what you've gone through to rehab that you give, you get a little more credit, I guess, that you've been through it. So you know how it is to come back. I mean, one of my therapists early on at, at, at the hospital before I could get up out of bed. So he, he would do my lower body. And even though I couldn't put weight on it, there were some exercises he would have me do. And, you know, one of the things he talked to me about is he had a hip replacement in his life. And so uh, suddenly I'm just like, okay, this guy, understands what it is like to go through this. Not that books don't help you, not that the experience as a physical therapist doesn't help you, but when someone's been down that road and they know what it's like to stand up for the first time, then you put a lot of weight into what they say because they're like, they're not just saying this from the textbooks or their experience. It's from their personal experience that they've actually done it. So, so yeah, I, I try my best to help anybody that's going through rehab uh, anytime I see someone with like a cast or a, or something with their elbow or, or um, uh, a splint or anything, I'll always ask them what they're doing and, and uh, what kind of rehab they're doing and how is it going. And, 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 and sometimes it's just about listening and giving a different perspective. And, and sometimes I don't give advice and just listen to what they have to say. And, you know, sometimes it's good to get out what the, the difficult time they're going through. And sometimes I'll say, don't short yourself on rehab. Make sure you keep on going beyond the time when you think you've had enough rehab. That's kind of my experience of helping others with rehab. Yeah. You went through uh, eight days of induced coma and hundreds of nightmares that were telling you no one's going to help you and give up, basically. I gather that was what these nightmares were doing. And you came back so much stronger with so much willpower to do just the opposite and to save yourself. Why do you suppose you had those dreams? You know, before that accident, like I said, I was going through a tough time in life. I was a couple of years earlier, I had gotten a new job and, and working ridiculous amount of hours. And, uh, I really felt like I had kind of lost purpose in life in terms of, you know, uh, because you're kind of just surviving to get to the next day and maybe you're surviving might be overstated. It wasn't like I was, it was dangerous an office job, but, but the reality was I, 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 I I'm great at focusing on things, which really helped 
through the accident process, I would say that my best attribute, my worst attribute is the same attribute. And it, it, that's being single-mindedly focused on something. That's what I had to do to get through every day at that job. And in that, I wasn't spending time with friends and family and things like that. And, and, I'm, and I'm just like, I'm really lost. I really, because I had a list. And one of the things actually on the list of things I want to do was volunteer at a hospital. I had never gotten to the hospital to volunteer there. And I wasn't sure how I was supposed to do things. And I, and I felt like I kept on repeating the same cycle and wasn't able to get through it. And the amazing thing about the accident was when I, when I lay there and for those 10 weeks and had to, had to, had to do nothing but lay there, it made me reassess my life. And you, you, you know, before you could, you know, jump out of a plane three or four times on a Saturday as a mask, call it a masking agent, not have to deal with your real life or go for a run, get an endorphin high. But in that time, it's like, nope, you don't get any of that. You get to lay here and you get to think about things. And it was the hardest thing I ever went through, but the best thing I ever went through. It's like I was burdened and I was given rest, not rest of the mind, but rest of the body. And I had to go through that. So the accident was a amazing break in the cycle I was living through. Then it's like, you know, what do you do with this? And it leads you down the path of how do you get your purpose back and how, how, how does that come back to you? And, and how do you want to live your life differently? And how, how do you want to wrong? Cause I, cause lots of wonderful things happened in my life before the accident, but I never thought any of that when I was laying that, but I was like all the things I wish I had done better. And those are the things you regret. And I, I try to share that with anyone that hopefully they don't smash on the side of an airplane hangar, but it's like, these are the things you regret. These are the things you wish you did better in your life when you wake up from a, a near death experience, you go and, and everyone might not have that second chance. And I, I warn them, like, you might not have that second chance. I'm telling you, this is the things you regret. This is the things you wish you did better. So I'm a big believer in building a strong foundation. And I think all the things you do in life, going through hard things in life just equips you to do other hard things. Some of the things before the accident were were hard things, whether it was that job or that climbing mountains or those, you know, hundreds of miles of triathlon. I defaulted to fight when I was in that situation because that's how I knew how to what to do, and that's what I was trained to do, or I trained my mind to do. So, putting yourself through difficult things now will prepare you for difficult things later because we're all going to go diff- through difficult things. So, yeah, I think that's a big part of it. Mm-hmm. A lot of folks that go through serious accidents wind up addicted to opioids. Did, did uh, you have any problem with painkiller drugs? I didn't. I'll tell you this story about that. Now, when you're in the hospital, they'll come to you every couple hours and ask you if you want pain pills. And that's just the reality. And, and, and they would encourage me to take pain pills. And they would say, you're in bad shape. Feel free to take them. They're okay. Uh, I think they're probably more responsible now than they were a couple years ago when certainly we had, well, I was still, I guess, in an opioid crisis. But I never liked them, not because they made me sick or anything, because they altered my mind in, in a little bit from thinking. My thought was, I'm laying in this bed to rebuild myself as a better person than I was before. And I have to continually build myself to what I want to be. And those things took my focus off of what I was laying in that bed and I was supposed to be doing. I'm not saying I've never took pain pills, but I avoid them as much as I possibly could. And then there got to a point when I started coming back from, from kind of my lowest low that I was like, I'm not going to take pain pills anymore because I don't like the way it makes diverts my mind from thinking about the things I should be sitting in this bed. And I was like, you're not going to get these pain pills forever. So if you rely on them, pain pills can be a crutch or they could be a useful tool. Now, if you start using them as a crutch, 
I was just like, oh, I don't feel well. Give me a pain pill. It's like, let me get through these next couple hours. And and that's that was the easy way to go about it. And I was like, they're not going to give it to you forever. So if you can't figure out how to deal with your pain now, when you start being able to use your legs and the rest of your body, you're not going to be able to get through that because you took the easy way out when you wanted those pain pills. So there was a point where I said, there are no more pain pills. And I didn't take them. I think I still have, when they sent me home with pain pills from the hospital, I've never opened them. I guess this is years later, but whatever kind of pain was in, I I didn't like them. And I also had a run in, not with pain pills, but with a therapist. They sent in a psychiatrist when I was kind of at my lowest mentally. And he walked in and was asked me, you know, what was wrong? And I said, you know, I felt horrible guilt for what I put my family through because I decided to jump out of that airplane. And I was doubting I was going to be able to come back because at this point I was you know, bedridden and the therapist would come in and move my arm an inch or two. And I was on the verge of passing out. It was so horribly painful. And I was yelling out loud. And I was like, if I can't, if someone can't come in and move my arm an inch, how the heck am I ever going to come back for this? So that therapist came in and I told him about that. And he said, he started naming off medications. And some of my noticed them as from TV commercials, like antidepressants and things like that. And I was just like, well, what? I don't know why he was asking me whether I thought it was a good idea. It's not like I'm a medical professional. But uh, I said, well, what are they going to do for me? He said, well, they'll take out your highs and lows. And there weren't very many, many highs at that point, mostly lows. But I was just like, but they're my lows. And I was just like, you need to hit bottom and feel terrible about yourself in order for me to build back up to where I wanted to go and who I wanted to be. And taking these medications to alter my mind was just taking me away from a true purpose of of being in that bed and being bedridden and not be able to do anything else, but thinking about my life. And I looked at the doctor and said, get out of my room and don't ever come back. And that was two minutes after he walked in. So it didn't last very long, his uh, little psychological games. And that kind of spurred the comeback of going, no, I'm not taking the easy way out. Now it's time to start rebuilding myself. So yeah, those pain medications certainly can get a hold of you. And one of the other things is I craved a clear mind. And when I was going through, whether it was the, the, you know, the coma or right after the coma, when those medications are still kind of, I guess, coming out of your system or those early days, or when they gave me morphine, I did like my mind, my, my, your mind is all over the place and you're not thinking straight. And I hated the fact because there were some parts of the day where you would think straight and there'd be another part of the day where you're just like out in another place where, I mean, my family would come in and I would say, ask him something. He said, did that really happen yesterday? Did I, am I just dreaming that? Or did I just hallucinate that? And I hated that feeling, which was similar, it, not not as bad with opioids, but I hated that feeling. And I, so I loved having a sober mind of going, I'm thinking straight in where I am. It might not be, I might be happy right now. I might be miserable, but I have my mind and it's clear to think. So I stayed away from that as much as possible, but I, I can see how people could get addicted to that. And, uh, um, but I, I, I was, yeah, I stayed away from that. And I, I saw that as something I just wanted to stay away from and not get into. Yeah. Tell the listeners how you got interested in doing a triathlon and what that was like to do it after your uh, accident. Yeah. And like I said, I, I raced triathlons beforehand years before. And it had been about six years since I, I had raced last before, before the accident. So uh, about a week after I wake up from the coma, I'm just laying in the dark by myself in the bed. I'm start thinking, I was like, well, what does 
a comeback or what does a, a rehabilitation mean to, mean to me? Because I'm super goal oriented and that I knew that's how my mind worked. So I was like, I need to find something to shoot for because otherwise what's rehabilitation? People just ask you, well, how are you feeling today? Like that's, that's not an answer. I want like a, like a, a time and a direct like answer. And I was like, if you race in a triathlon, that means my legs work again, my arms work again, my heart works again. So that to me, it was like, that's a test that everything works as well as it can at the time. So it was about a week after the coma. So I wake up and say, okay, that's my goal. Now I never told anybody because I didn't want to hear that, you know, someone go, yeah, that's going to be great. Yeah. You know, that false, like, we're not going to let you down and uh, tell you you're never going to race in a triathlon again. I just kept up to myself. I was like, this is mine. So I kept that in the back of my mind. So I keep on doing rehab and it's so, it seems like it's so far away. And I thought it's going to be two years before I do it. I don't know where I came up with that number. No one, I didn't ask anybody. I said, this is going to take two years because the accident happened June 23rd. So I was like, it's not going to be this summer. It's not going to be the next summer. It's going to be the following summer. It seemed realistic to me. I don't know why, but it's a lot of things seem realistic to me that I start and don't seem like there'd be a high level of a, a success rate, but I'll still go after it. <laughs> so keep on doing rehab, get out of the hospital. And I start doing that running, like I said, 50 feet, 150 feet, 250 feet. So I finally talked to my mom uh, on the phone one day and I say, uh, I say, hey, mom, I, I, I like tell her right away what I'm doing because I figured because she, she was always so nervous that I was going to hurt myself again. So I said, mom, I went running yesterday. And she said, uh, she's like, running, what are you doing? She's like, you're going to hurt yourself. And I said, no, mom, don't worry. I already been doing it for a month. I'm already up to like, you know, a minute and a half at a time I can run. Finally, she lets me know why she's so concerned. I thought she was just being my mom and being concerned, but she she let me in on it. She said, well, you know, a week after you woke up from that coma, they took me and your dad aside and started telling us your prognosis. And no one told me any of this, and I'm glad they didn't. She's like, they just said, you weren't going to walk for at least six months, maybe more. And I wound up walking at three months. I wound up starting the first run in six months. They said, you're not going to be out of the house or doing anything useful towards a job in at le- for at least a year, maybe longer. I did it in seven months. So I thought I was terrible at rehab because I kept on like banging my head every day going, f- and not literally banging my head, but, but going after it every day to go be- to get better and better. And I thought I was going so slow, but the reality was I was going twice as fast as anyone thought possible. Plus, they said you would never run again. I was already started running at the six-month mark. It was an ugly run, but it was better. So I was like, oh. I was just like, I thought I was the worst rehab patient of all time going into <laughs> this, but apparently I'm like going way faster than anyone thought it. But I was like, ah, oh. I was like, wait a minute. If I said I was going to do that triathlon in two years, I was like, what happens if I do it in one year? Since I'm doing everything else twice as fast, why not do this? So I get home uh, the following day. I go for a run. I'm thinking about this in my head and literally I'm running very short distances now. It's not like I was running for a half hour. And I, I think back to a race I had done like seven years before. And it, and I look it up on the computer and I would go, wait a minute, this race happens one day short of the one year anniversary of the accident. So I get like fixated on that. I was like, wait a minute, what if I do that? So I sign up that day and I go, okay, you got three months to train. I was starting from nothing because I had to have uh, additional surgeries on my elbow. They had to re-break my arm. So it would bend again. And finally the week before they said I could finally get it wet for the first time. Um, and then I got my, I was like, okay, I need to get my bike in shape too. And uh, so I go, okay, I'm, I'm going to race this race. So three months goes flying by. Oh, I did, you know, try to train every day and 
um, I'm going slow. And, and there's, I, I had done tra- races before, but since my body was so broken, I was like, is this possible? I, like, ah, I don't know. I, there's only one way to figure it out is to do it. So it, the race day finally comes three months uh, later and uh, it's horrendous downpour. And it's June in, in Colorado, but it's, it's 46 degrees, super cold rain. Lake water's 59 degrees. Um, and uh, so half the field doesn't even bother showing up for the race because the conditions are so bad. I never raced in conditions that bad for a triathlon. So I was like, but you only have one day to race this. And this is the only day you get to beat that one year anniversary. So I was like, I don't care. I'm racing this. So starting gun goes off, jump in the water. I'm, I'm out like a hundred yards and I start freaking out. My heart is going like over 200 beats a minute. feels like it's coming out of my chest and I'm hyperventilating. And the only reason I knew what this even was is because the first few weeks after waking up from that coma, I would get panic attacks. So yeah, I would have those same dreams that I, or nightmares that I would have in that coma after I woke up from the coma. The only difference was I could wake up and go, that's not real this time. So um, in the water, I, I turn over my back and all these questions start going in your mind. Like, did I do this too early? Should I have not done this? Was this a bad idea? And I see the shore as a, cause I turn on my back. So, so I'm now facing the other direction and I see the shore and it's like a hundred yards away. And I go, well, the easy road is to turn around right now and go back to shore and get out and give up. But I was like, mm, nope, been too far to come to this point to give up right here. I was like, just take a couple deep breaths and just go another hundred yards. And when I made it a hundred yards, I started coming down, calming down a little bit more. And I went another, I go, go another hundred yards. I went another hundred yards. I like, you're calming down more. Another hundred yards. All of a sudden, then I'm, now I'm swimming. I'm totally calmed down and I'm actually swimming well. I'm just like, oh, it's coming back to me. And then I get off there and I get on my bike and the rain is like coming sideways. It's so cold. And you're already wet, obviously, from swimming. So you're wet. And so I would say 46 degrees is not that cold. Jump in a cold pool, then get out and start riding your bike. Now see what feel six degrees feels like. Doesn't feel good. But I didn't really care because at this point, my whole purpose was I was just like, if I could come back from this and show other people what was possible, then I could give this example to other people. So I was stronger than just myself. I was like as strong as 10 people, not as fast as 10 people because I was going pretty slow. But I I was just like, you're stronger because you have a purpose. It's not about you finishing this race. It's about all the people you could help if you finish this race and prove what's possible. So I start riding my bike and it's super hilly. And then about halfway through the bike, I'm just like, I can't feel my feet anymore because it was so cold and so wet. And there's all this spray coming up from the ground. It's like, oh, okay. Five minutes later, I was like, you, yeah, I can't feel my hands either. They're on the handlebars, but I can't feel them. So I'm like, well, it, well, just keep going. I've been through worse, right? So I just keep pedaling. And then third of the way left, my, my chain starts hopping off the gears. And uh, the only one I could find that won't hop is like a huge gear. So I could barely pedal over these hills. I finish up the bike and next is the run. And uh, so I put my running shoes on. Luckily, I just slipped them in because my my fingers were had no dexterity. They were so cold that I couldn't even tie my own shoes. But I luckily, I just shoved my feet in there and were able to get them in. And and the voice of the doctor comes into my head as I'm putting my shoes on. And because the first doctor that that approved me to to be able to walk for the first time, my first question to him was, "Well, how many more months before I get to run again?" And he was just like you're probably never going to run again because of all your injuries. It's going to hurt too much. And I was just like, I didn't say anything. I just kept that in the back of my mind this whole time. You're never going to run again. I was like, time to show them. 
So I had 16, 6.2 miles to go and I started running and I didn't stop till I finished and went through that, um, you know, that, that, that finish line. It was about three miles before I got any, uh, feeling back on my feet. So I was like, I was, I was like, oh, you're going to trip. You can't even feel your feet at this point because <laughs> they're so numb, but I finished up. So I thought of all those people that had helped me along the way, you know, to get to that point. And then I was lucky because when I would go back and visit, because I would, I would always try to visit the people that helped me to let them know how big a difference they made in my life. And, and I wouldn't be where I was today unless it was them taking that extra step. So the whole thing is they would say, well, how are you doing? And I finally had a concrete answer to tell them. It was like, well, I finished our triathlon and I wouldn't have been able to do it without you putting that extra work into me because there was lots of people that would, you know, they would come back to me and say, you know, I wasn't really even sure how to treat you yesterday. I had to open up my textbooks from physical therapy school to figure it out because you had so many injuries and so many things that I, we have to work around to, to get you through. And I mean, you're, you're, you're kind of speechless in that. It's like, I can't believe that person worked a 12 hour day and then went home and put, opened up their textbooks to try to figure out how to treat me. I was like, you're just like, I don't even feel like I deserve like that, that much care and that much what they did for me. And, and, uh, I would say like, I can say to them, thank you. And, and let them know how important they, they were to my life. But I was like, the best thank you I could give them is to take what they helped me with and pass it on to someone else. And hopefully whether it's, you know, mentally getting through something or physically getting through something. And, and that's my ultimate thank you to them is to pass what they taught me on to someone else to take care of someone else. So, Well, Jason, we're just about out of time, but I think this show is going to encourage a lot of people to go the extra mile or the extra 6.2 miles in their lives. And so I thank you for being on with us here. Tell the folks how they can find your book and how they can find out more about your uh, lectures when you have the time to do those. Sure. So my website's jasondenon.com, J-A-S-O-N-D-E-N-N-E-N. You can get it. I'll autograph every copy, give you a personalized message in any book order there. You also could find it on, you know, Amazon and Barnes and Noble and go to Instagram, which you'll see my, you know, latest talks. And that's at JWD Boulder. And that's Boulder, like the city in Colorado, B-O-U-L-D-E-R. And don't give up and don't give in. Lots of people in your life, or, or you know, whether it's a doctor or a therapist, they're going to tell you that you know it's not possible, or you shouldn't be able to do this. And you know, the reality is, um, you have to take control of it and um, and overcome what you what you're looking forward to, and have a goal and and go out and get and get after it. Don't listen to the people that aren't invested in your life and telling you you can't do things. Because you know, if I listened to all those people that told me I couldn't do it or this isn't possible, then I wouldn't be near where I am today. And so don't give up. Terrific. Thank you, Jason. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me on. My thanks to Jason Denon and thanks to our listeners for listening. If you'd like to hear the show again or any of our more than 500 archived ad-free NDE interviews, go to TalkZone's NDE radio site and hit the Past Shows button or go to our YouTube channel, NDE Radio with Lee Whitting, where you can subscribe to and comment on the complete NDE radio library. Be sure to check out our NDE radio Facebook page. Just search NDE radio with Lee Whitting on your Facebook app. 
and listen next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern at Talk Zone for more NDE Radio. I'm your host, Lee Whitting, saying thanks for listening.